0: God's word is good, and this, these particular verses that we're going to talk about today uh, make me tremble. There's a song that's been in my spirit that I've been singing for weeks now. It's, it characterizes what we are to learn from this text.
1: Maybe you could sing it with me. My hope is built on nothing less. Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is. Sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand.
0: Well, brothers and sisters, if you hear nothing else, what we need to do today is not trust in the sweetest frame, but to wholly lean on Jesus' name. Well, I have been super encouraged over these last couple of weeks as we've navigated our way in the book of Revelation. And I am particularly thankful, and I was reminded of it as I was preparing over the months of our pastors, Corey and Andy, who faithfully preach week in and week out, proclaiming the gospel that we might be changed and transformed. So I do thank God for both of them today. One of the things I'm realizing as I've been diving into the book of Revelations is it feels less mysterious as time has gone by. I also feel like I'm starting to see a more sweet reminder of this beautiful redemption story that Christ invites us into. I will say that when I figured out um, the text that I was assigned to, um, I did cry out, help me Jesus. Because I immediately remembered that this is the puke passage. This is the passage when God declares that he's so sick of the church that he's literally going to spit them out. I honestly can't think of a stronger rebuke that God could really say that you are so bad that you make me want to throw up. But as I've studied and prayed, I've come to see that the underlying disposition of God towards us is actually one of love and long-suffering. So this morning, as we soak in this strong rebuke that's given to the church of Laodicea, I hope and pray that you and I together will be able to behold the goodness of God even in the face of warning and rebuke. So before we get to the letter, I think it's worth summarizing a bit of where we've been over these last number of weeks. So over the last couple of months, we've seen these six churches, and we see how each of the letters is written with a very similar structure. First, there's a the description of Christ that's contextualized to the church. Then there's praise for what the church has done, and then there's a complaint about the church, And then it's followed by the promises of God. And then finally, at the end of each one of the letters, there's a reminder for all of us to hear what God is speaking. So what starts as a letter to one church ends with, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That churches, it's plural, and that's meant to be an application for you and for me and for all of God's people. So we are given these seven church examples to help us to evaluate our lives, to consider ourselves, to see ourselves rightly, and to even course correct when we identify that there are things in our church, in our hearts, that need to change. Jesus reveals himself differently to each of the churches. He actually exposes a different problem, and he offers a different intervention. So, for example, the church of Ephesus was reminded of their first love. The church of Smyrna is invited to stand in suffering. The church of Pergamum is urged to discern and not compromise. The church of Thyatira is commanded to think and not waver in issues of morality. The church of Sardis is told to wake up from spiritual deadness. And the church of Philadelphia is encouraged to persevere, and to be strong. I've learned so much about each of these churches, and it's actually reminded me of something that I do every day in my day job. When I'm training medical students, we teach them by using case presentations. Our students begin by thinking about the diagnosis, and then we think about what the complaint is and how to treat it. We always begin with the case presentation because it highlights the actual problem. We call that problem the chief complaint. And we highlight the chief complaint because it helps us to actually identify the solution that's needed. In medicine, we build something called a differential diagnosis. And it's the time where we invite our students to consider the many causes of the problem. So once a a diagnosis is identified, then we're opened up to talk about the treatment. So in the very same kind of way, in each of the letters to the seven churches, it reads like a case presentation. We are invited as learners to see the chief complaint, to consider the diagnosis, and to identify how it should be managed. So with that said, I want to invite you to join me this morning like a group of medical students so that together we can discuss and dissect the text Identify the chief complaint, build a differential diagnosis, and talk through how it gets treated. So there's three themes I want us to cover. First, I want us to see the character and the nature of a great physician who makes this diagnosis. And then second, I want us to consider this diagnostic challenge, this diagnostic dilemma. There's a dilemma that actually occurs when we're self-deceived and unable to recognize the the true problem. And then finally, I want us to consider how we might respond when we realize that this diagnosis is actually of us. So let me pray for just a moment. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us now as we dive into your word. I pray that you would speak clearly to us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves rightly. And most of all, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your great love that is demonstrated even in the face of rebuke and discipline. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, students, today we have before us the Church of Laodicea. Our goal is to understand who is this church, what is their problem, and how does this problem get fixed? And so first we begin with some background, some historical perspective. We know that Laodicea was a great city. It was a place that was wealthy. The folks there, they had material prosperity. And we actually learn in the book of Colossians that this city was located near two other important cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. The people of Laodicea, they were affluent. They were prosperous in many, many ways. Now, among their accolades, they were bankers. It turns out they also had a center for clothing production. And apparently there even may have been something like a medical school or a place where there was medical innovation. There's some historical documents that describe that they made some eye ointments that were designed to treat blindness. So it turns out this city was doing really well, it seemed. And at some level, they were self-sufficient. And so the Church of Laodicea had similar DNA. It was a church that was characterized by being comfortable and well-off. Its members probably included professionals and those who were movers and shakers in their community. They likely saw themselves as autonomous, successful and fruitful, lacking nothing. But we learned that the church's view of themselves was far from reality, so much so that God labels them as the church that he will vomit out of his mouth. Turns out that this is the only letter where God offers no praise. Instead, it reads like a harsh rebuke. I will spit you out of my mouth, says the Lord. So this church might even be considered the worst among the seven. So in medicine, we use a term that's called emesis. We use it a lot, and basically it means to vomit. It's not the most pleasant thing to talk about, but it's in the center of the text. It's usually caused by something that's really nasty, it's smelly, it's repulsive. It often results from an internal stimulus that happens because there's this underlying process that needs to be fought and is wreaking havoc in the body. And God actually uses this kind of word to describe how he will reject the church of Laodicea because of his extreme disgust. So how is it that a good God would say that? And might he even say that very word to us? Trinity Park Church, you make me sick. These are hard questions for us to consider. But fortunately, God has given us his word that anchors us, and it shepherds us so that we can take a good look at ourselves in light of the gospel. So the first point here is to first consider the character of a great physician who makes this diagnosis. Look with me, if you will, at verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus describes himself as the Amen. When Jesus says he's the Amen, he's giving claim to this reality that he alone is truth. He is the certainty of all that is going to happen. Jesus Christ has already proven himself to be the God of truth, who is reliable and faithful and true in every way. We even say amen at the end of our prayers because we're agreeing with what has gone before. Our amen is an affirmation that Jesus is trustworthy and true. We even say in Jesus' name because we are affirming the position of Christ's authority as creator and savior of the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Jesus is the amen. He is the final word, and he is the definition of all that is true. I saw a quote from Charles Spurgeon that says this, When Jesus declares himself as the Amen, he is saying that God has done all that is necessary to bring to completion everything that he has begun. It's a declaration of his surety to deliver his children perfectly and completely home. It is a claim to his all-sufficiency, his omnipotence, his immutability, his omnipresence, and his eternal nature. So Jesus, the Amen, as the faithful and true witness does exactly what he says he will do. Jesus also describes himself at the beginning of God's creation, which restates these words from Revelation chapter 1. It says this, The faithful testimony who goes before us as the firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings of earth. So how is Jesus the firstborn of the dead? Jesus is the only one who has triumphed over death once and for all. Jesus, who is the perfect lamb who was slain for sinners like you and me, is also the eternal king who triumphs over the grave. So Jesus is actually going to contrast his all-sufficiency with our insufficiency. He is making it plain that he alone is eternal, He is the one who is and was and who is to come. It's almost like taking a moment to remind a child in a very loving way, my son, I love you, I am for you, and I have something very difficult that I need to share with you. It's the same thing that Jesus is doing for us. So we can also see Christ's disposition for the church that's revealed a little bit later in Revelation 19. It begins this way, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So we can find great encouragement that Christ's disposition to the church is grounded in his love for them. Proverbs chapter 3 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. So, brothers and sisters, we are loved by God and he never leaves us to fix ourselves. So these opening words of the text can really be a great comfort to us, especially considering the rebuke that's about to go down. Notice that before God tells the church he is nauseous and about to vomit, he declares, I am the Lord. I am faithful, and I am true to my promises. I know you better than you know yourself, and I have every intention of completing all that I've begun." So Jesus is the great physician who examines our hearts. His bedside manner is perfect. He walks with us, and he gently nudges us, and he directs us so that we might be more dependent upon him. You know, when we first began this series in the book of Revelations, we talked about this vision that John had. John sees these seven golden lampstands, and he sees the Son of Man in the midst of the lampstands. Those lampstands represent the church, and Jesus, the Son of Man, is amidst the church. Friends, it means that Jesus Christ walks among us, and he abides with us. He sees our hearts, he sees our filth, he knows our needs, and this means that even when we live in a way that is literally nauseating to the Lord, There is Christ Jesus in the midst of our dysfunction, inviting us to return to our Creator and our Savior. So friends, let's behold the deep measure of this grace that is found in Jesus Christ, even in his description as the faithful amen. So we can turn now to the second point here. This is verses 15 through 18. If we know that the disposition of the great physician towards the church is one of love, we can now turn our attention to the chief complaint, the diagnosis, and even the treatment that's given by Christ. So in the second point, we need to understand that there's this diagnostic dilemma, there's this challenge, and it has to do with being self-deceived. Verse 15 says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot? Laodiceans, it would be better for you to be hot or cold. But to sit in the middle makes you useless. You know, I've been trying to drink more water in my workday, but often I barely make it through my one bottle of water. But just this past week, I noticed a colleague reach below the counter to grab ice from a hidden ice box that I had never noticed in four years. Now that i filled up with ice, I fill up my water bottle like three times a day. There's just something enjoyable and refreshing about ice-cold water. And it actually, for me at least, outweighs that room temperature option. Thinking about the refreshing benefits of a cold drink on a hot summer day, or maybe even the soothing heating pad that's used when you're trying to nurse a painful injury. It serves a purpose. So both hot and cold serve purposes, and the complaint for the church of Laodicea is that they are neither. God tells the church that they can't stay in the middle. Living life halfway is not an option. One of the stories that I've enjoyed reading to my children when they were younger is the story of Halfway Herbert. Maybe some of you know it. Halfway Herbert goes through life doing everything halfway. He does half his homework. He cleans half his room, he eats half his dinner, he brushes only half his teeth, and he ties only one shoe. He learns in the end that life is not meant to be lived half-heartedly, but rather he must give his whole life to God, never walking the middle road, but instead loving God with his whole heart, mind, and soul. Well, the church of Laodicea struggled with this, and Christ, the great physician, He renders a diagnosis. It's in verse 16. He says, Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Although the people of Laodicea thought they were doing well, their spiritual state was a wreck. Historians have actually described that while Laodicea had these great business industries, their water supply might have actually been a big issue. One could actually head north to the hot springs of Hierapolis. Or one could head south to the cold springs of Colossae. But the tepid and lukewarm water of Laodicea was good for nothing. And it may have even been so bad that it made some people nauseous. So it's like Christ is saying, the way that you feel about the drinking water that's disgusting, that runs through your town, this is how I feel because of your spiritual pulse. The church of Laodicea was so independent and so self-deficient that it created a stench in the nostrils of Christ that made him want to vomit. The indifference of the church was repulsive, and they were found to be lacking in fervor and lacking in passion. These chilling words from Christ immediately reminded me of Genesis 11. And it's there that God declares that there was such great wickedness of man on the earth that the Lord wanted to blot out man because he was sorry he had made them. But I'm refreshed by the very next verse that goes on to describe Noah. And we learn of the ways that God will use Noah to save his people. Praise God that in the same kind of way, God speaks these words to the church of Laodicea. But we also know that vomit and rejection is not the final word. So let's take hold of the gospel as we contemplate the level of this disorder that's found in the church of Laodicea. So they were deserving of this judgment because of their lack of dependence on Christ. In the same way, I think it's appropriate that we would ask ourselves the question are we lukewarm? We should ponder the ways that in our individual lives we can be prone to be self sufficient purposeless in our faith and lukewarm. Is it possible that we have ignored our need for communion with Christ? There may have been many in the church who actually saw themselves as Christians. They may have showed up to church. They may even know how to articulate the gospel. And yet there was no fervor. There was no dependence upon God. At some level, I think this diagnosis It hits each and every one of us. So let's take a moment and to consider to what degree we may fall into this diagnosis of being lukewarm. In verse 17, we see this dilemma exposed even further because what God declares about the church is actually very different of what they see of themselves. Verse 17 says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, And I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the church, they think that they're rich and prosperous and have no needs. You know, we may never say this out loud, but perhaps this is how we live. Do we live with this same kind of presumption and self deception? It's very clear that this church has fallen into great apathy. They were lacking in concern and they were indifferent to the gospel. It's like they sang the songs on Sunday morning and they agreed that Christ was really important, but their lives never reflected it. It's as though Christ functioned like a trophy, remaining on the shelves, but never actually being worked out into the daily rhythms of their lives. The Laodiceans were successful with some things, but unfortunately, they used those physical things to measure what they thought was rather spiritual. Maybe we're prone to do the same thing, and we might forget our true depravity before God. Maybe we are prone to fool ourselves into thinking that we're better off than we really are. This would be the ultimate self-deception. It's interesting, there's actually great irony in this section of the text as we think about what Christ is describing to the Laodiceans as being wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. As I told you, the Laodiceans turned out they were bankers, but yet they were spiritually poor. They actually were masters of the clothing industry, and yet he's describing them as shamefully naked. They were also these innovators of treating blindness with an ointment. And yet Christ describes them as spiritually blind. It's as though Christ is saying to us the very same thing. That those things that you think make you self-sufficient, they are actually the things that expose your inadequacy and your need for Jesus Christ. So now that we see the problem and the diagnosis, we can turn our attention to a small glimpse of the remedy or the treatment. We find it in verse 18. It says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So the intervention for their spiritual state is to come and buy the things that they are lacking. Now, if God tells us that we're pitiful and poor and we need to buy something to be made right, there's an obvious problem. We have no funds to make that purchase. But fortunately, these words echo the words of Isaiah 55 that say, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So to experience the mercy of God, we are merely to come, we come to Jesus thirsty. We come to Jesus with empty hands that we might buy and eat. Essentially, God is inviting the Laodiceans out of their lukewarmness by coming to Jesus so that they might be restored. To buy true riches in Christ means laying down the riches that we think that we have. The clothing that we put on is not material clothes, but it is the garments of the righteousness of Christ. And to be clothed in Christ is to receive the honor of acceptance into his kingdom. To be clothed in Christ is to receive that honor. And Christ ends up being the salve that opens our blind eyes so that we can truly see. It's only Christ and only in him that we can experience true deliverance from what it means to be lukewarm. So like the church in this letter... We've got to come clean with the ways that we are lukewarm and unaware. So let's call the question one more time. Are you lukewarm? Do you live with a half-hearted response before the Lord? Have we heard the gospel and perhaps at some point even been excited about it? But now we just coast. You know, when a child is starting to get sick, it's a very normal practice to check a temperature, because this can be an early sign of sickness that is to come. And in our text today, we are invited to take a spiritual temperature. Are we neither hot nor cold? Is our thermometer reading in the apathetic zone? Are we going through the motions, but our fire and our passion for Christ has faded? Perhaps the fervor candle Blew strongly much ago, but now it's gone out. And in this moment, today, Christ calls us to return. So Jesus diagnoses the problem, telling us that spiritually we are neither hot nor cold. He declares that the diagnosis is that we're lukewarm and that the treatment is to return to Jesus Christ. And so, in our final point, we need to consider the response once we realize that we are lukewarm. The instruction that we're given is to be zealous and to repent. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. To be zealous means to be wholly committed. It means to be fervent, it means to be passionate for Jesus. Rather than halfway or lukewarm, We daily walk with God using the means of grace that he has given to us so that we can grow day by day and moment by moment. This zeal is grounded in the knowledge of God, and it comes first by knowing God, pursuing him in the scriptures, and surrounding ourselves by others who are also zealous for the Lord. As one of Christ's redeemed, there should be visible transformation in our lives for the one who is zealous for good works is the one who knows that they have been redeemed from lawlessness and are now a people of God the second we're told the second command is to repent to repent simply means to turn away from sin it may be helpful for us to notice that the thing that the church of Laodicea is most in need of it is vile but it is also common We ask God for forgiveness for having a heart that has grown callous and indifferent. Maybe we don't have an outward hostility towards God. But maybe instead we simply just live in the gear of neutral rather than drive. And our response must be to repent as we turn to Christ. And then in the final few verses of the text, we are given two promises that await the one who flees lukewarm living. I think these words can be very encouraging for us, just as it was for the church of Laodicea, as well as for the other six churches. For First, the one who repents is the one who is anchored in Christ and experiences communion with him. We find this in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock... If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Do you notice that the same God who warns us that we are in danger of being spit out is the same God who stands at the door and knocks, inviting us to experience lasting communion with him? The picture here, I think, is reminiscent of Luke chapter 12, where it says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. This is a promise for us to be zealous and to repent. And those who are zealous and repent will be the ones who are ready to receive Jesus Christ when he knocks, inviting us into eternal fellowship with him. And then quickly we can look in verse 21 to the second promise. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus promises that just as he is the overcomer, so are those who trust in him. So we see pictured before us Jesus Christ seated as the conquering king. And that should be a clear reminder to us of the finished work of Christ. Jesus died for our sins. He's conquered death once and for all. And as we turn in repentance and hunger and thirst after Christ, we enter into all the blessings that he supplies. So there is rest for the child of God who trusts fully in Christ as the victorious conquering king friends if we ever desire to pursue power or success let it be the success of being seated with christ jesus the amen makes that promise to you and to i to me today so in conclusion we see this great physician he is the lord jesus christ he demonstrates his love for us even as he exposes our indifference and our apathy. We see Christ name this diagnosis, being lukewarm. And then he shows us how it can be addressed. It's addressed by seeing the gospel, coming to Christ and receiving more of him. So even in the face of strong rebuke, the church of Laodicea and each of us are invited into deeper communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ covers our shame and our nakedness with his righteousness. Christ applies the ointment to our eyes that allows us to truly see ourselves and to see him. God restores our spiritual blindness. God alone is the one who clothes us in his righteous robes, That we might experience every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The text closes with this He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us as a church. I think it's very fitting to close with these words from Revelation 1 and 3. It says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near says the Lord who is the amen Should you bow your heads and pray with me Heavenly Father thank you for these words that you have penned so that we might be poked Lord would you first remind us of the deep measure of your love that does not allow us to go our own way. But instead, you offer discipline and rebuke that we might be changed. And so, Lord, I thank you for these words that were given to the church of Laodicea in the midst of their lukewarm living. Thank you that you invited them back into fellowship with you. Thank you that you declared very clearly the consequence of walking neither hot nor cold. And yet you, Lord, declared that you alone would be the one who would clothe them in righteous robes. And that you alone would be the one who would put ointment on their eyes that they may see. So Lord, if we find ourselves in that place today where we can identify at some level with what it means to be lukewarm and indifferent to you, God, would you rush in and change us? Would you help us to get around others who are zealous for you? Would you give us opportunities to see ourselves clearly and to run to you that we might be forgiven and changed and transformed? Thank you that these words are true. And thank you that Jesus, the Amen, goes before us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus.
1: Amen.